If you have your Bible, I invite you to go ahead and grab them and turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 will be in verses 31 through 38 this morning in our time together. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided by the church, you can find that on page 793. Mark 8, verses 31 through 38. Today, I want us to consider what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. As we have studied the Gospel of Mark, we have seen that many in Jesus' day were looking and longing for the Messiah to come. They were looking for the promised one who would come and deliver God's people by defeating God's enemies and establishing God's rule and reign forever. They had read the scriptures of old and they had anticipated the day when the Messiah would come. And many had expectations for what the Messiah would do and what he would be like. Many thought that he would have a noble birth, but instead he was born in a barn. Many thought that he would come and he would dine with kings, but he ate with tax collectors and sinners. And many thought that he would come to defeat an enemy, and though he would, it just wouldn't be the enemy they had anticipated. As we continue our our time in the Gospel of Mark, we're seeing more the pressure to answer the question, who is Jesus and what has he come to do? And last week, we saw with Peter's confession that the the secret is now out. It is no longer concealed. Jesus is the Messiah. But the question remains, if Jesus is the Messiah, and he's not what everyone anticipated him to be, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? What kind of Messiah would you say today that Jesus is? Let's follow along and, and see what the Spirit wrote through Mark's writing, here in verses 31 through 38. Let's see what kind of Messiah Jesus actually is. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside, and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What kind of Messiah is Jesus? I think Mark tells us two things about what kind of Messiah Jesus is. One, he's the kind of Messiah that dies for his people. 
And two, he's the kind of Messiah that requires his people to die for him. Number one, he's the kind of Messiah who dies for his people. That's verses 31 through 33. And number two, he's the kind of Messiah that requires his people to die for him. That's verses 34 through 38. Let's look at point one now. He is the kind of Messiah who dies for his people. With these section, or with these verses, we enter in a new section in Mark. Prior to Peter's confession, we are seeing just kind of just some brief descriptions. It's a, it's a narrative about what Jesus was doing and teaching and accomplishing. He came preaching the word, calling people to repent. And we saw that his mighty words were affirmed by his mighty works of casting out demons and healing the sick and raising the dead and feeding thousands and walking on water. And with all these mighty works, Jesus would instruct those near him who benefited from his ministry to remain silent. But with Peter's confession, we now make a shift in the Gospel of Mark. You see, Jesus is no longer going to be shy about who he is and what he's come to do. In fact, from our passage this morning to the end of Mark chapter 10, we see Jesus declare three times all that he's come to do, all that he's come to accomplish. And starting in Mark chapter 11, we see Jesus go to Jerusalem and accomplish all that he came to do. And our passage this morning, which starts this new section, is basically episode two, or part two of episode one. You got part one last week, there's the declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, and today is part two, kind of the continuation of the conversation. Here we see Jesus respond to Peter and his disciples about what it means for him to be the Messiah. He looks at them and says, you're right, I am the Messiah, and here is what it all means. Now, it's natural to assume that these disciples would be thrilled. I mean, it's popcorn worthy to sit around Jesus and to hear, what does this actually mean? I mean, in this conversation, is Jesus about to tell him his plan and how he's going to take back and establish the throne in Jerusalem? Is he about to tell the disciples how he's going to gather this great army that's going to go to Rome and defeat their enemy? And what part would the disciples play in Jesus establishing his rule and reign? You have to imagine that these might be some of the questions that were running through their mind, and thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave them or us in the dark about what he came to do and what he's doing in the world. He tells them emphatically here in verses 31 and 32. Look there with me now. He says this. What kind of Messiah is he? He says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. So Jesus says, you're right. I am the one you're looking for. I've come to do all that God promised he said he would do. And the way that I'm going to do it is by dying. The way that I'm going to establish my reign is by laying my life down. Now, it's hard for us in some ways to comprehend how crazy this might have sounded to the disciples. And I have to use an illustration from the greatest movie franchise maybe of all time. It's called Rocky. <laughs> Except for Rocky V, for it does not exist. In Rocky, Rocky II, we see that Rocky is going to fight Apollo Creed one more time. 
And he's eager and ready to train to fight the heavyweight champion of the world. So Mickey, his trainer, takes him out in the back alley, and he's saying, you got to gain speed. We've got to grow in speed so you can beat Apollo Creed. And here's how you're going to do it. You're going to chase a chicken. Now, it seems absurd. What does chasing a chicken have to do with fighting Apollo Creed? It sounds bizarre. And what does ruling and reigning have to do with dying? It has to sound crazy to them. They would have heard this potentially and said, Jesus, we don't understand what you're saying. We don't know what you mean by saying that you are the Messiah, you are the Son of Man, and you've come to die. And Jesus is not confused. Jesus has not lost his mind. He's very deliberate and careful about what he says. Notice, for example, what he describes himself as. He doesn't call himself the Christ. He doesn't call himself the Messiah. What does he say? The Son of Man. Now, this is a a citation, a, a quotation, a reference to the Old Testament prophet Daniel. So Daniel says, many, or Jesus says, many of you have read Daniel. You've read of these prophecies and you've longed to see them be fulfilled. And all that Daniel says is about me. What did Daniel say? It's in Daniel 7. You can mark this and go look at it later this afternoon. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. This is what the prophet Daniel says of the Son of Man. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, I don't know for sure that when Jesus called himself the Son of Man, if the disciples went back to this passage in their mind, but if they knew their Old Testament well, they would have said, Jesus, it says nothing about dying. It only speaks of reigning. Jesus, you have clearly lost your mind. By Jesus calling himself the Son of Man, he's saying, yes, all that is true. Everything you see in Daniel 7 is absolutely true. I'm establishing my kingdom that will know no end, but the kingdom only comes through suffering. It will only come if Jesus loses his life first. And by Jesus saying that he is the Son of Man, that the Son of Man must suffer, he's helping not only his disciples, but all of us today read our Bibles better. He's helping us put our Old Testament together. You see, he takes the prophet Daniel, and paint, who paints the picture of a reigning and ruling victorious Messiah, and he puts it together with Isaiah's suffering servant. He puts these two things together, and he's saying these passages are not talking about different people, but the same thing. The reigning Messiah is the suffering servant, is what Jesus is saying. I mean, just go into your bulletin now. Just look there. I want you to flip back to what we read earlier uh, on page 10, Isaiah 53. Just look there with me, and just think for a second about everything I read in Daniel 7, and compare it to what you see here in Isaiah 53. Does that seem like the same thing to you? I mean, in this, what we see in in Daniel 7, Daniel paints a picture of glory, but is Isaiah one of grief? Daniel paints a picture of might, and Isaiah one of meekness. Daniel paints a picture of rejoicing, but Isaiah a picture of rejection. These are not contradicting passages. They are the same, the two sides of the same coin. The Messiah would establish his kingdom through his suffering. 
it would be suffering and then glory. Why must the Messiah suffer? The Messiah would be treated like a sinner so that sinners could be treated like the Messiah. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus came to take our sin so that we could be freed from it. Jesus took on our unrighteous so that we could be accounted as righteous. It's the great exchange that many have talked about throughout history. That Jesus takes the place of sinners and we take the place of the righteous because of what Christ has done on our behalf. I mean, just think about the rest of Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 11. Listen to what Isaiah says there. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So this is saying that this has been God's plan throughout history. There is no plan B with God. He is not a reactionary God. What he says he will do, he will do. He's declared the end from the beginning. And he's the one who put him to grief. He's the one who crushed him. It says this, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Jesus takes the place of sinners so that sinners can have a place with him in heaven forever. That's what this means. This is the mystery of the Messiah. That this ruling and reigning king would establish his kingdom by laying down his life for his people. That is who Jesus is. That's what kind of Messiah he is. Why would out of the anguish of his soul would he see and be satisfied? You ever notice that in verse 11? It says, out of the anguish of his soul, he would see and be satisfied. What did Jesus see in the midst of the greatest anguish? Anyone who's ever experienced on this earth, what did he see that would satisfy his soul? Oh, he saw his people. A multitude that no one could number, free from sin. Made right before him, declared right before him, standing and praising and worshiping him for all eternity. That's what would satisfy Jesus' soul in the midst of anguish. Jesus is the suffering servant, the Messiah, who lays down his life for his people so his people can be with him forever. You would assume that the disciples would hear this and rejoice. They would say, finally, we understand the Old Testament. We understand how it all works and fits together. But how did they respond? Look in verse 32. Look at your Bible. Verse 32. It says this, And Peter took him aside and began to praise him. Peter took him aside and began to worship and thank him. No, that's not what it says. It said he took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is the very same Peter who last week we saw confess Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. And he takes Jesus aside and says, Jesus, you've lost your mind. You are not thinking clearly. Clearly, you need to stop. For you cannot establish your kingdom if you're laying in the grave. Peter's confused. He doesn't understand. How proud and foolish must one be to look at the Messiah, the Son of God, and say, you don't know what you're talking about. And we want to give Peter the benefit of the doubt. I don't assume he realized all that was at stake in his statement to Jesus. 
I don't assume that he realized in that moment by rejecting Jesus, he was seeking to thwart the work of redemption. I don't think he understood that right by rebuking Jesus. He was basically suffocating his only hope of being made right with God. For those here who are not Christians, we're so glad you're here. How are you thinking about what Jesus is saying in this passage? What does it mean to you and what does it mean for you? If all that Jesus is saying is true, what should that mean for you? See, Jesus came to die in the place of sinners. Sin, to be clear, sin is this. God has created the world. He created it good. He gave us instructions and rules for how to live in the world. And when we choose to go our own way, we reject God. And that's called sin. And because God is just and holy, he must punish, punish all of our sins. And all sins before God are equal before his eyes. So you may say, I'm here today, and yeah, I've done some bad things. I've lied, I've, I've gossiped, I've been judgmental towards people, but I've not committed adultery or murder. Before God, your lies are just as grievous as, his, as murder is. He is a holy God, and he sees it all the same, and all sin deserves to be punished. And the wages of sin, the payment for sin, is death. But God made a way. For us not to experience death, to not experience the justice of God, Jesus came forward and took the wrath of God, satisfied the wrath of God, so that we could be made right with God and forgiven forever. Oh, I would encourage you, don't reject your only hope for reconciliation with God today. Turn and trust and believe in him. We would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to have your sins forgiven, what it means to be made right with God. Our performance will never make us right with God. It is only trusting in Christ's. That's the only way that we can be made right with God. How does Jesus respond to the rebuke? What does he say? Look down at verse 33. Mark tells us, But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Mark here saying that Jesus turns around and looks at his disciples is a reference to the fact that Peter is probably speaking for all the disciples. It probably means that the disciples were in agreement with Peter that Jesus had lost his mind, that he was wrong, that he was not reading his Bible accurately. And Jesus, being the loving person that he is, corrects them and shows them how foolish their thinking was. And him calling Peter Satan was not a term of endearment. Jesus was not being hyperbolic. Jesus was saying, Peter, the way you're thinking is the way Satan thinks. You have now taken on not the mind of God, but the mind of Satan. He'd come, he sounds just like Satan in the wilderness earlier, you see in Mark chapter 1, doesn't he? Satan comes, and what does he do? He seeks to, to tempt Jesus, to lead Jesus astray, in hopes that he will stop his work. And Peter's doing the exact same thing by seeking to stop Jesus from what he came to do. Brothers and sisters, any time someone affirms what God condemns or condemns what God affirms, they are rebuking God and doing the work of Satan. Anytime someone affirms what God condemns or condemns what God affirms, they are rebuking God and saying, God, you're wrong. You don't know what's right. We often see this take place in our world when people, I assume, with good motives, who claim to follow Jesus, say there's no need of repentance, that God will accept you as you are, for love always wins. And to deny the need for repentance is to deny the gospel. 
is to reject the gospel altogether. To deny the need of repentance is to say that Jesus' death was worthless, that he wasted his time and blood, for God already accepts us as we are. And to say these things and to believe these things is to join forces in arms with Satan. Brothers and sisters, flee from those who seek to undo the justice of God in the name of compassion and love. Run from those who read God's word with an eye of skepticism and an eagerness to undo what it says and requires. Don't listen to the people in your life who are encouraging you to do what feels natural to you. Do not listen. Run from those who affirm what Jesus died to save you from. Do not give them any place in your life. Jesus tells Peter, the disciple, in the disciples, you're not setting your mind on things of God, but the things of men. The things of men always bring condemnation and judgment, but the things of God bring forgiveness and redemption. Jesus says, you're right, I am the Messiah, but you've been thinking wrongly about who I am. See, I've come to suffer. It's suffering and then glory. It's rejecting, then reigning. It's death and then deliverance. It's a cross and then a crown. That is the only way. There is no other way. And Jesus now looks at them and says, this is what I've come to do, and if you want me and all that I offer, here is what I require of you. You must die for me. Look at our second point now. Jesus is the the kind of Messiah who not only dies for his people, but requires his people to die for him. Let's look back at verses 34 through 39, or 38 now, excuse me. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus with his disciples, he pauses and he calls the crowd to himself. He wants everyone to understand what he's about to say isn't just for the inner crowd. What he's about to say isn't just for the apostles. It is for all people throughout history who want Jesus. You see, many people want Jesus' blessings and benefits, but do they want his yoke? Many people want Jesus' offer, what he offers, but are they willing to do what he requires? And what does he require? What does he require of his people? He says, if you want me, if you want Jesus, you must deny yourself, you must carry your cross, and you must follow me. He essentially looks at them and says, if you want what I offer, you must lay your life down. You must die. That's the language he's using here with the the carry your cross and deny yourself. It's the language of dying to one's self. You see, see, being loyal to self and desires is what got us into this mess to begin with. So the call of Jesus is to reverse what took place in the Garden of Eden. See, our first parents in the Garden of Eden, they were loyal to themselves and their own desires and said no to God. And Jesus says, if you want to return to that Edenic state where you dwell with God forever, you must say no to yourself and yes to God. 
That's what he's calling us to. Jesus here is calling for a transfer of loyalty and authority. He's saying, turn and transfer, transfer your loyalty from yourself and sin to Jesus. He's saying, give me all the authority in your life. He's saying, step down from the throne of your life and let me sit on it and reign. That is what Jesus is calling us to. He's saying, you must die if you want me. Now, is this death that Jesus calls us to, is it something that happens once or is it something that we do over and over and over again? Yes, it's both. We die and we continue to die. Uh, what, what Mark describes here, Paul shows us in Colossians 3. Again, I'd encourage you to, to mark this and go look there later. There, Paul says in Colossians 3, verses 2 and 3, he says this, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. So Paul says you're dead. Past tense, already happened and finished. This is a good death. You want this kind of death. He said you're, you're di- you've, you've died. But listen to what he says in verse 5. Though we've died, he says in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So you're dead, so keep dying. The old man is dead, and as a Christian, you must continue to put him to death every single day. This is the Christian life. Paul here is just simply telling us about justification and sanctification. That's what he's saying. We were born again when we believed in the Lord Jesus. We put the old man, old man to death, and we were declared right in heaven, eternally fixed reality. But now on earth, we live in light of what has been declared in heaven, and we seek to put that old man to death every single day. Jesus says, if you want heaven, you got to get rid of yourself. Self keeps you from heaven. You must put it to death and put on me. The call to carry our cross may seem tame in our eyes, but it would have not been tame in the eyes of the disciples in the crowd. It was not seen as a piece of jewelry or art in their day. It was a graphic image. Crucifixion, though not invented by the Romans, was probably perfected by them. It was, a choice, it was their choice way of punishing criminals, the rebellious, and dishonored soldiers. It was the cruelest form of torture and punishment you could imagine. It was so bad, it was such an awful way to die, that unless, other than extreme cases, they would certainly not punish a Roman citizen with crucifixion. This image would have been in the mind of these disciples and the crowd. And I think it would have been in the mind of those Roman Christians that Mark was writing to. They understood the cruelty of the cross. They had it in their own mind. They were living under Nero's reign and who was notorious for blaming Christians for things that went wrong in Rome. And the way that he would punish many of them was through crucifixion. So in part, I think Mark is writing this to say the way of the cross is the way of Jesus. You've heard the truth. Many of them, when they heard carry your cross, probably saw family members and loved ones in their mind as they read this. They understood the weight of the cross. We don't have an equivalent in our day to communicate the gravity of what Jesus is saying. For some, we would prefer that Jesus would call us to die via lethal injection, where we just lay there and you inject the drugs in us and then we just slowly pass away. Wouldn't it be nice if you just came in every week and I gave you a little injection shot? and you're just good for the next week, and you don't really have to do anything else. Jesus didn't call us to die via lethal injection, but crucifixion. Crucifixion is gruesome, it's painful, it's horrible, and it's right. It is what he calls us to every single day. 
We prefer the easy way, but Jesus says, if you want me, it's going to cost you everything. If you want all that I offer, you must die to yourself every single day. What does it mean practically for you to carry your cross and to die to yourself? What might that mean in your life? Here are a few things I thought. It means carrying your cross looks like telling the truth even when it's costly. Carrying your cross looks like being content in singleness when you so desire marriage, but the Lord has not given it to you yet. Carrying your cross looks like choosing forgiveness and forbearance over resentment. Choosing to carry your cross looks like putting anger to death and forbearing with those in your life who bring great pain and frustration. Carrying your cross looks like putting every barrier and safeguard in place so that you are far from sexual sin. Carrying your cross looks like turning down a promotion that would require you to mute your faith and convictions. At its most basic level, carrying our cross, denying ourselves, putting our flesh to death means we say no to the world and our flesh and we say yes to Jesus in every area of our lives. It means that your choice sin, whatever it might be, whatever way the world is tempting you, whatever way Satan is trying to take you out, every single day you wake up and say, I'm going to put this to death today. And I pray the Lord takes the temptation away, but if he doesn't, I'm going to keep putting this thing to death every single day until he comes back. I'm going to make war on my sin and temptation in my life until Christ returns. In your life, what sins are you most tempted by right now? What sins are are crouching at your door, seeking to ruin your life? And do you see how serious it is? Are you laboring to put your sin to death to make sure it has no place in you? I want you to imagine this. Imagine you're in bed one night, and you wake up in the middle of the night, and you hear a sound, and you become convinced that someone has broken into your home. What would you do? What if the invader is coming for your spouse? What would you do? What if the invader was coming for your children? What would you do? I can assure you of this. You wouldn't say, well, I've called to the police. So I'm just going to wait until they get here. I'm just going to wait it out. No, you would do anything and everything you can to make sure they did not get to your family. You would do anything and everything you can to make sure that you and your loved ones were safe. Because you would understand the serious nature of the threat. And Jesus wants you to see your sin in the exact same way. He wants you to pursue it like something that is trying to take your life because it is. So what Jesus is calling us to, this is the Christian life. Your sin wants to lull you to sleep. Your sin wants you to see it as insignificant. As J.C. Ryle said, your sin will never look at you and say, I'm your mortal enemy and I hope to ruin your life in hell forever. It's not how it works. And the scary thing about your sin is it's not only after you, but it's after all the people in your life. You see, when Satan in the garden went to tempt Eve, he wasn't just after Eve. No, he was after Adam and all of humanity. Your sin doesn't want just you. It wants everyone in your life. Your sin wants to destroy you. It wants to destroy this church. And it wants to bring reproach upon Christ in our community. So your pride your anger, your lust, your lies, your, your selfishness, they're all coming for you and all the people in your life. And Jesus says, if you want me, you must be willing to put it to death. 
I say this often, and I'm going to continue to say it. The way in which Jesus has designed for you to put your sin to death is with the people in this church. So you need people in your life that you're confessing your sin to and talking about potential temptations. Now, to be very clear, we're not trying to figure out your dirty secrets so we can bring you up here and embarrass you. We're not trying to bring shame upon you in your life. We're not trying to be legalistic here. No, what we're trying to do is learn how you struggle so that we can walk alongside you and put our shoulder underneath your cross and bear it it with you. That's what we're trying to do. That's what Jesus has called us to do. Jesus says, you want me, you must count the cost by carrying your cross. In the rest of the passage, he's just basically saying, here is what's at stake. Here's what it means to carry the cross. Look at verses 35 through 39 again. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Here, the message of Jesus is serious, but it's very simple. If you choose sin, you'll die. But if you choose Jesus, you'll live. That's what Jesus is calling us to. You can try to play it safe and say, I'm going to choose what's comfortable and easy. I'm going to pursue what the world has for me. Not be ashamed in this life, but if you choose that way, you'll be ashamed in the life, of, in the life to come. But if you are willing to be ashamed in this life, oh, when Christ returns, you will never be ashamed ever again. It's the paradox of the Christian life. We live by dying so that by dying we may live. That's what Jesus calls us to. He requires it of us to say no to flesh, to say no to the world, to say no to the devil, to gain him. He says, you can choose the world and all that it offers and be rejected later, or you can be rejected now by the world. Which will you choose? Brothers and sisters, Jesus promised us that he's worth it. He promised us that that he's worth being rejected for, but he never promised it would be easy in this life. There's, There's no guarantee of an easy path to heaven. And we need to know this today. A crossless Christianity is no Christianity at all. The way of the cross is the way to heaven, is the way to be with God forever. And Jesus puts it on all of us today. Are you willing to be rejected by men so that you may be found in him? Or will you be accepted by men and rejected by him in the end? That is the offer. That is what he puts it to you today. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is the imagery of the parable of the sower, isn't it? Where Jesus says that many will follow him when it's convenient, but when temptation comes, when tribulations come, many will desert him because they realize he wasn't worth carrying their cross for. They were happy to leave him behind when the pressure arose. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to lose everything if it means you gain Christ? In the 1600s, in France, there was a 14-year-old Protestant named Mary Durant. And she was arrested, tried, and convicted based on her faith. And the French authorities were going to give her an out. They simply said, if you will renounce your faith in the gospel, if you will renounce your faith in Jesus, we will let you walk free. They didn't ask her to do anything gross or grievous, immoral, uh, immoral act. They simply said, say the words and you'll go free. But she would not do it. 
because she understood what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit her soul. And so she and 30 other women were taken up to a tower, and there they were imprisoned for 38 years. And for 38 years, they were forced with the choice. They were faced with the choice every single day. Gain the world or forfeit your soul. Gain the world or carry your cross. And they chose the way of the cross. The cross meant for them the death of the dream of marriage. The cross meant for them the the death of the dream for children. It, It meant for them they would die to future hopes and dreams of growing old with their family and friends. It meant for them they would sit and rot in the cell. That is what the cross required of them. But they saw the cross as worthy, and they were happy to bear it. Brothers and sisters, that is what Jesus has in mind when he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, carry his cross, and follow me. Have you counted the cost? Are you willing to to lose your life so that you may gain it? Brothers and sisters, in times like these, moments like these, this is a mercy of Jesus saying, count the cost. The pressures aren't as high as they may be in the days ahead. The cross may get heavier in the days ahead. So now is the time in which we grow and train ourselves and submit ourselves unto Christ to prepare ourselves for the day when the cross requires greater sacrifice, greater loss, greater pain. Brothers and sisters, I want our church to be a place that is so convinced that Jesus is worth it, that it doesn't matter what the world threatens us with or it doesn't matter what the world offers to us. We are happy to lose our lives because it means we gain Christ. We want to be a people who are happy to bear our cross regardless of the cost. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who who doesn't take delight in the ways of the world, but he leans on the righteous one, which is Christ, who finds a treasure in him that's worth losing everything to gain. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah, the one who laid down his life for us so that we might have life with him forever. We pray today that we would be a people who count the cost, who are eager to carry our cross, who are eager and willing to to pay the price, to, to feel the rejection and shame from the world if it means we gain the Lord. Oh, Father, we pray that all the members of this church would be found in him on that day when he comes in all his glory and power. We pray that that each one of us would be found in him, not ashamed, but glorified and rejoicing forever. Father, we pray for those among us now who are lost in sin, who have not counted the cost. We pray that by your grace and for your glory, you cause them to be born again, and they would pursue Christ and lose everything to gain him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.